It's tricky with like the laptop because I'm trying to. Are oh, you are you recording? I am, but it's I'm, fine. I can, I can cut this out. I'm no sorry. Worries. Oh, you will be sorry. Hey, everybody! Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan, and I'm Jesse, and this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app. You can look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 337. That's a lot of days. It's almost 365. Not quite, but we're we're within a month now, so we're it's pretty crazy. And as always, if you have any questions that you would like us to answer, you can feel free to email info at grove.church, or you can send a direct message to the Grove Church Facebook page or the Grove Church Instagram. We're available on both of those spots. Well, Jesse, how's it going? You haven't been on the podcast yet. This is my first time. Yeah, if you don't know me, I get to serve as the youth and young adults pastor at the church and have been here for about four years, and it took four years for Evan to finally trust me enough to invite me to this podcast. Well, in in fairness, it took like three and a half years to even have another co-host that wasn't Aaron on the podcast I guess that is true. Eventually, we just decided that, you know, because in the previous years, when one of us was gone for a week, sorry, Aaron's on vacation right now. Uh, We're recording this on Thursday, so he's about to watch the Seahawks lose to the Cowboys in Dallas, but... And I am wearing a Seahawks jersey as we record this. It's true. So. A, a Ken Walker, which, yeah. is, which is a fine jersey, I have to say. It is. Thank you. But yeah, we used to, uh, when one of us was going to be gone a week, we would just record two or three episodes in a week. And then finally we decided, you know what? This is too much work. We're just going to get people to co-host. So that's been the idea. But Jesse, thank you so much for stepping in. And listeners yeah. at home, hopefully you're going to, hopefully you vibe with it. We'll see how it goes. Happy to be here. All right, well, we are going to finish up the book of Acts, and then we're going to jump into a few of the different epistles this week. So we, it's, it's going to be pretty exciting. We pick up right after last week's cliffhanger of Paul being arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, as he's being dragged away, he asks to speak to the crowd. So you can kind of imagine, you know, they're like, away with him. And then as Paul's getting dragged away, he's like, hey, let me talk to the crowd here. And then Paul introduces himself in Greek, which is, you know, pretty standard. That's like the lingua franca of the time. But then he switches to Hebrew, which silences the crowd. And, and you can kind of see because, I mean, the whole, not the whole thing, but a big part of the controversy controversy with Paul and with the, the Jewish leaders at the time is that they don't seem to view Paul as Jewish, right? Because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going out and he's doing all these different things. And so all of a sudden he begins to speak to them in Hebrew. And I think they knew he was Jewish or maybe they didn't. Maybe they just think that he was, who's this guy, Paul? And I guess he's using his Roman name as well. So you never know exactly what's going on there. But either way, he speaks to them in Hebrew. It quiets down the crowd. And then we're going to see this theme repeated a lot during the book of Acts. Paul is going to share he, he's going to share basically his entire testimony. <laughs> he's going to do it quite a few times between now and the end of Acts. So buckle in. You're going to read a lot of that. Uh, but as he is going away, he essentially, he gives an entire testimony as to his ministry and to his faith. So Paul lists off, first off, his qualifications of Judaism. He talks about how he was a student of Gamaliel, who is one of the famous Pharisee teachers, and he's zealous for God, just like the crowd. And so he's, he's kind of comparing himself to the crowd a little bit about how you know, they want to punish him for in their in their heads speaking against who God is. And Paul's like, hey, been there, done that. Like I bought the t-shirt. Uh, I was just like you. And then he tells them about what happened to him that changed his mind. And so he shares that he persecuted Christians. And then he 
uh, once again recounts his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, noting that there are witnesses to the blinding light, but not to the voice of Jesus. So he's like, you know, if you want to ask people about this, there are people who are with me. They can testify to the fact that a great light came and, you know, knocked him off his donkey, as it were. Uh, but at the same time, they they didn't hear the voice. Only Paul got to hear the voice. Uh, so as he continues, we can see Paul begin to show why he had left Judea. The Jews certainly view him as an outsider. Speaking in Hebrew was a first step. And then he tells them that the reason he was made an apostle to the Gentiles was partly due to the fact that the church in Israel would have a hard time accepting him after his intense persecution, which makes sense. You know, if you're, if you're getting called to the ministry, like, Hey, is that that guy who kept trying to kill us? You know, it it makes sense that Jesus was like, let's get you to the Gentiles. Like maybe he's not trustworthy. We should avoid that guy. Yeah. You know, I, I have a lot of. I have a lot of trust in pastors, but if it came out that like some guy was trying to have me killed and then he was my pastor, you know, maybe I'd want a different one. Maybe I would wish someone else was my pastor. That's fair. I don't think anyone faults you for that. Yeah. So there you go. That's what's happening in that moment. And then right after this is when the crowd loses it. Apparently that's a bridge too far because he's like, yeah, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. And the crowd's like, whoa, whoa, the Gentiles. And so then they get really angry. They send him away. And uh, Paul gets taken before, uh, well, not yet. He's about to get taken before the governor. So the tribune orders that Paul should be flogged, which is beaten. Uh, And Paul responds by asking if it's lawful to flog a Roman citizen. Spoiler alert, it was not lawful to flog a Roman citizen. Oh, my. Yep. And so you can kind of imagine like the tribune being like, yeah, go beat him up and get the information out of him. And Paul being like, oh, I'm sorry. Is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? And the (laughs) tribune being like, oh, shoot. (laughs) Oh, no. And so, because uh, the Tribune even comes to him and says, hey, this is my Roman citizenship. I bought it w- with a lot of money. And Paul's like, oh, that's cute. I'm a Roman citizen by birth, which you can kind of imply is even a, a bit of a step up from the purchased citizenship. So, Just quite a flex. Yeah, not, not looking good for the old Tribune here. But that's what happens. So the Tribune backs right off. And then he even worries about the fact that he had Paul bound up. So the Tribune's now just all worried about, oh, no, like they're all going to be <laughs> mad at me. Uh, so then we go after that, we get into chapter 23. And then Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, which had both Pharisee and Sadducee members. Um, if you remember, the Sanhedrin is kind of like the, the it's the. It's not the governing body of Israel, but it's they have a lot of influence, and they're kind of the religious governing body of the time. And so there was priests that the high priest was a part of it, who is obviously a Sadducee. I say obviously, I mean the high priest was a, the Sadducees controlled the high priest at this point. So there you go. Uh, but there was Pharisees and there were Sadducees on the council. They stand or not stand. There's you know Paul is standing before them, and it's time for him to you know it's time for him to stand trial before all of them. Uh, so that is what we and we get the scene of Paul being really smart. So if you remember, one of the big, not controversies, one of the big dis, disagreements of doctrine between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Pharisees were totally cool with the idea of resurrection from the dead. Uh, and they had problems with Jesus for a lot of other reasons, but they were totally fine on that point of doctrine. The Sadducees, on the other hand, believed that there was no resurrection from the dead, that there wasn't that, that that's not about to happen. And so here is Paul and here's what he does. Take, take a look. It says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God and in all good conscience up to this day. 
And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it's kind of interesting, like, to, to pause really quick. It's interesting that Paul did not know that that was the high priest. So I don't know what, what all was going on. I guess Paul had been away for a long time at this point, so he, he wasn't keeping up with uh, the politics of the Sanhedrin, I suppose. But he basically just, you know, he gets slapped, and then you can understand Paul's kind of, you know, he's kind of peeved that he just got slapped. He tells him, I'll slap you. No, he doesn't say, I'll slap you. But he's like, God is going to strike you. And then they're like, hey, that's the high priest. They're like, oh, that's my bad. Sorry, I, I don't want to disrespect <laughs> the high priest. So, you know, good for Paul. He's showing... Respect for the authorities of his time uh, who want to kill him. So way, way to go. Way to, way to be a better Christian than many of us would be, Paul. Uh, so it says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the crowd, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul's really smart here. So and, and I said this, we, we talked about the intertestamental period. The way that we as Christians kind of view the Pharisees and Sadducees as, as if they were kind of the same with a little bit of differences. No, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were natural enemies. That's kind of mm-hmm. the point of when they hate Jesus, that's why it's crazy because these two, I mean, it'd be like the Democrats and the Republicans agreeing on something, right? Like they have very different ideas Ooh, yeah. of how things are mm-hmm. going to go. But then all of a sudden they all agree that they hate Jesus. That's what, yeah, that's the power of Jesus uniting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeah. 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 Or something that like works. that. But Paul's smart, and so he's, he knows where he's at, and so he's like, oh, yeah, Pharisees, I'm on your side. Resurrection from the dead, we all believe in that, don't we? And the first is like, yeah, yeah, we do believe in that, Paul. And then it starts a big old fight, and that's how <laughs> that's how Paul gets out of it the first time. Uh, so after this, we find out that some of the Jews vow to not eat or drink. I would assume Sadducees, but who knows? Uh, but some of them vow not to eat or drink until they have killed Paul. So they say, that's mm. it. We're, we're fasting until we finally kill Paul. They make a plan to ask the tribune to bring Paul over for more questioning, but instead they would kill him on the road to the, to the I don't know what the place is called, where the Sanhedrin meet, something like that. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I, I missed that. I don't know. I don't remember. I it is. It's one of those things. Well, Paul's nephew hears about this and warns Paul who in turn tells him to go tell the tribune uh, or the tribune. And when the tribune hears this, he has Paul brought under armed guard to Felix, the governor. So basically he's like, okay, well, we're not messing around with this. I think he grabs like 200 men or something. He grabs a large amount mm-hmm. of men and he moves them. He moves them over to where Felix is at. Uh, and then I put in the notes, I wonder if, I wonder what happened to those guys who vowed not to eat. <laughs> like, do, they, do you think they kept the vows and they just died of starvation or did they like, I don't know, did they renege on it? 
Yeah, you know, something tells me I think they gave in on that eventually. We'll have to ask God on the other side of eternity. <laughs> like, hey, whatever happened to those, very, that very specific small group, we, we whatever could, happened to those guys? We could ask Paul as well. He'd be like, those guys will let me tell you. Those noobs. Those guys. Oh, man. So Ananias, the high priest, he then travels to where Felix is at and he makes his case about Paul once again. Uh, Felix isn't all that impressed by Ananias' case. We find out that he's actually pretty knowledgeable about Christianity. It's called the way in the book of Acts. So when mm-hmm. you see the way, that's what it's talking about. Uh, and this is possibly due to, due to his Jewish wife, Drusilla. So he has a Jewish wife, we find out. And so she's probably at least somewhat familiar with this new sect of Judaism that has risen up. Uh, and so he keeps Paul in somewhat comfortable captivity for two years. When his time as governor is over, he leaves Paul in prison as a favor uh, to the Jews. So, you know, Felix is, he's all right. He's not the best. It is kind of funny that overall he's like, yeah, I don't really find anything wrong with Paul, but I don't really want to release him. And then at the end of it, he could have released him as his term of governor was running up. And then he's like, oh, you know, I want to do these guys a favor. Let's keep him in here. So we then get to chapter 25 where Paul is before Festus, who is the new governor. And it's only been a few days. Uh, And so Festus, uh, Paul goes before Festus again and Festus wants him to be tried before the Sanhedrin. And Paul's like, I've been there. I've done that. You know, it's not really what I want to be doing. And so Paul says, no, no, no. I'm in the right court right now. I'm in the court of Caesar. Uh, that's I haven't wronged the Jews at all. This is where I should be. And then he eventually declares at the end of the speech that he appeals directly to Caesar. And Festus mm. tells him famously, to Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar to- you will go. Exactly. Way to finish my sentence. You're welcome. There you go. You should bring me on the podcast more often. It's just, true. Yeah. We finish each other's sandwiches. That's an old reference. I don't think we've ever done that. I also don't. What is the reference? I feel like you have to tell Oh, it's it. Frozen. You don't remember that reference? Really? I was not expecting to have to say this publicly on the air, but I have never seen Frozen. Oh, dude, good and for you. That's actually something I'm proud of. Frozen 1, I was kind of... Uh, I never, I was never like a huge fan, but you know, at the time it was like a huge movie when I oh, yeah. watched it. And then I had friends like... Tell me, oh, go watch Frozen 2. It's amazing. And so me and my wife actually went to go watch it. And I was like, I just kind of kept waiting for it to get good. And then the movie mm. ended. You know, it's like Mad Men. That happened to me with that show too, where everyone was like, that show's amazing. And then I watched like a few seasons of it. And I was like, when does it get good? And then finally I realized, oh, I just. It's not good. I don't like this show. I won't say it's not <laughs> good. I'm just like, you know, it's like sometimes you realize, oh, this is not a show that I'm going to enjoy. So it is what mm. it is. Uh, sorry, listeners. That was a complete, <laughs> complete sidetrack there. <laughs> Uh, so next up, Paul doesn't ex- exactly go straight to Caesar. He goes to Herod Agrippa. Uh, and then if you're not confused about who all the Herods are, you know, I can't help you at this point. There's a lot of Herods. But he, this is the one who's in charge at this point. Uh, apparently, Herod was visiting Festus and was like, so Felix left me this guy named Paul. Crazy situation. He keeps talking about how he was serving this guy named Jesus who died and rose again. And Agrippa was like, whoa, I'd like to meet that guy. So there you go. They have that conversation. The next day, they bring Paul into the audience hall. Agrippa and his wife arrive in full pomp and circumstance. And Festus pre- presents Paul saying that he finds no faults in him. So real pilot vibes mm. is kind of what I put down. It reminds me of, you know, Jesus and Pontius Pilate and all that stuff. Uh, Agrippa invites Paul to speak and Paul gives his full testimony. once, a- And he once again shares his bona fides as a devout Jew and how he persecuted Christians and how Jesus knocked him off his donkey. So he shares, he shares the story once again. Uh, Paul then tells Agrippa, I put Agrippa in the notes for some reason, but he then tells Agrippa how he's been called to the Gentiles, eventually culminating in this scene. Uh, and I love this. So it says, and this is Acts 26, verse, starting in verse 24. 
And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Notice how he gives him some proper respect there. Yep, good Uh, compliment. Good (laughs) move, Paul. It's a good time. But I am speaking true in rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would that I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And I always imagine that that got a laugh. I don't know how he said it. Like maybe he said it very seriously, but I always, because basically what Paul's saying, mm. I would love for you to be exactly like I am, except maybe not a prisoner. You know, that would be nice. Yeah. I feel like he got a couple, he got a couple chuckles on that. It says, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and all who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Again, kind of Christ vibes here <laughs> once again, because yeah. Pilate's like, I don't get what's going on here. Uh, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, hmm. which in one sense is like, dope, <laughs> like Paul, Paul, you could have just been free. But obviously that's kind of the plan. Like Paul wants to go to Rome. He wants to, he wants to appeal, appear before Caesar is kind of the idea. Yeah. He, he wants to preach the gospel to the most powerful man in the world at the moment. Um, we don't get to see that in the spoilers. Shoot, I shouldn't have spoiled that. Ah, it's okay. But you know, I would assume it happened at some point. Did it work? I mean, if you look up Nero, you'd say probably not. Probably not. But it is like a pretty ambitious thing. And I think just even for us, like how ambitious are we as Christ followers to go and find those types of hard to reach people and be like, to the point of Paul, like, hey, I'm willing to be in jail just so I can go talk to this person. That's a great point. You know, I just think that's really... Compelling and challenging. How many of us would be worth? We would be willing to suffer prison just to glorify Christ. Probably not as many as we'd like to think. That's true. Well, so Paul is taken to Rome, and remember, this is back before you could just slap someone on an airplane and get there in a few hours. So this is going to take quite a, quite a bit of time to get there. Uh, they take a ship heading along the coast towards Turkey. And so basically, you know, if you're making your mental map, they're in Jerusalem. So they're going to go out to the coast. They're going to sail north. You're going to hit Turkey. They're going to hit ports along the way. Uh, and then eventually they make their way to the island of Crete, which is south of south of Greece. It's the big long island in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, they get there. And here's the thing that always bugs me, right? I shouldn't say always bugs me. It bugged me when I was reading it. They need to find a place to winter. And they arrive at a town. They arrive at a port. And the name of this port is Fair Havens. That's where that's where they're at, and you know what, Jesse? If that's I so was nice. if I was sailing and I arrived at a port called Fair Havens, I would think to myself, "This is a nice place to put in for the winter. This yeah. this might just be where I go." Uh, but it's not good enough. Not good enough for this crew. They're like, we need to leave Fair Havens, and we need to just get. <laughs> And they're not even trying to get to another island. They're not trying to get somewhere crazy far away. They just want to get to the western shores of Crete, a town called Phoenix. Mm. Which I mean, I guess that probably has. It's probably a better port than the Phoenix we're more familiar with. I don't think there's many ships that go in and out of I would probably say Phoenix doesn't have any ports. That's true. You know what I found out the other day? That this is a whole other side. You know that the London Bridge is in Arizona? Like someone bought it. And then like, so like London Bridge, the, not the original, because the original one was like a wood one, but like the London Bridge before the current London Bridge, someone was like, they're like getting rid of it. And so the guy was like, oh, I'd like to buy it. And so he had it disassembled, wow. 
shipped to America and then it's somewhere in Arizona, like wherever his hometown is over a river and then they just rebuilt it. And so you can go see London Bridge today. That's crazy. Well, not only do we have our independence, but we have their bridge. (laughs) We took your bridge (laughs) when we're coming for the monarchy next. Just kidding. Although that would be quite the, uh, that would be quite the historical comeuppance Mm. after all that time. That would be. Anyway, for our our (laughs) listeners in the UK, we we love you guys and we're not actually coming for the monarchy or anything. Although the London Bridge thing is hilarious. I That's love pretty that. cool. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, they tried to push their luck and get to Phoenix, which is a harbor in Western Crete. Well, a storm comes and blows them way off course, uh, all the way to the island of Malta. And to get an idea, I, I can't really explain how far away this is. You just need to look at a map. Uh, but just know that Malta is fairly close to Italy. And Crete is fairly close to Greece. Uh, and they're not trying to get from somewhere crazy to Crete. They're just trying to get from one part of Crete to another part of Crete. And the storm is bad enough that they get completely blown, like just blown way off course. So there you go. Um, and yeah, if you take along, if you if you look at a map, you could see how long it would take to get there. About 14 days is what it takes, mm. according to the taxes. And this is them fighting with the storm the entire time. Uh, so as they're being blown off course... Paul spends his time encouraging the sailors and saying that as long as they all stay together, they will survive. So he's just telling them, hey, like, I know this is crazy, but just, you know, focus up. It's going to be okay. God's got this. Uh, Eventually, they arrive at Malta or they arrive at a strange island. They don't know exactly what it is yet. Uh, And Paul tells the men to eat. He's like, hey, look, it's been 14 days where you guys have barely eaten anything. You've barely drank any water because they've been trying to keep the ship afloat. He's like, just take a break, eat. It's going to be fine. Uh, So they do that. The next morning, they decide that they're going to try and beach the ship. So they're going to sail the ship all the way onto the beach at Malta. Uh, They start and then they hit a reef on the way, which if you Mm. don't know, that's that's a big no-no if you're sailing. Uh, And so the hole gets torn apart. The ship starts to sink. And so they're going to have to make a swim for it. Well, the – why can't I think of the word I'm thinking of right now? The policy, the standard policy at the time, the protocol dictates that uh, at this point you would kill all the prisoners on board so that they can't escape – but the centurion who's in charge of Paul, he likes Paul. And Paul seems like he, he makes a lot of friends where he goes. He makes a lot of enemies as well. But he makes he makes a good amount of friends. And so the centurion does not want to kill Paul. And so he stops the soldiers from executing all the prisoners. He says, no, we're going to go for it. Uh, so those who could swim, they swam. Those who couldn't swim, they grabbed onto pieces of the ship, obviously wood pieces that would float. And then they paddled their way in. And no one, no one dies. Everyone survives. So really cool thing. Uh, and then we get this really interesting roller coaster where they arrive safely. The Maltese, I don't know if that's what they're called. Probably it's probably what they're called. Uh, but they're they're all very welcoming. They're cool. They make up a fire and everything. Paul goes to get some more wood and he a viper bites him in the hand. He comes back and he has it hanging off of him and he shakes it into the fire. And all of the Maltese are like, oh my gosh, like this guy must have been a horrible criminal because he survived a shipwreck. And yeah, and they say the the goddess of wisdom has not allowed him, or sorry, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to, has not allowed Mm -hmm. him to live. Well, they just keep kind of waiting for him to fall over and die and it doesn't happen. And so eventually they arrive at the conclusion that Paul must be some kind of a God. So he goes from uh, being under the justice of the gods to all of a sudden being one of the gods. As you can imagine, Uh, Paul is not, you know, it it is funny how many of us can say this, it's not the first time Paul's been mistaken for one of the gods. And so yeah. uh, he put he puts it down. He's like, no, 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 that's not who I am. And he starts sharing the gospel with them. He he heals some of the sick. It's, it's a really cool time. Paul Paul's going to Paul's gonna preach the gospel. That's kind of what he does. Uh, so they, they hang out in Malta for three months. And then finally they set sail for Rome. 
And once they get there, Paul is greeted by members of the church in classic Paul. He spends his time sharing the gospel with everyone who will listen. Uh, we're told that some listened and some didn't, which is kind of, that's just a way to sum up any Christian ministry ever. That's true. <laughs> some listen, some don't. Uh, and then Acts ends with these words. These are the last words of the entire book of Acts. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed, welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. The book of Acts ends on a cliffhanger, not even a cliffhanger, I guess. It just ends. And and this is where I think of all the books in the New Testament, this one is probably the easiest one to date because I I would say clearly Paul hasn't died. (laughs) Like if Paul, if Paul died, Luke would have written about that. Uh, So when, when do I think Acts was finished? This moment, I think, I think pretty much after Paul arrived in Rome, uh, about two years at his own expense, that's about the time that Luke wrapped it up and then he sent it off to Theophilus. So there you go. That's kind of the idea of what's happening there. Uh, if you're wondering what year that would be, that would be in the mid 60s, mm-hmm. uh, AD 60s. So about 30-ish years after the resurrection of Christ, give or take, is probably when we have the book of Acts, which actually in turn helps us date a lot of other things. So that means the gospel of Luke is earlier. So that Mm -hmm. means the gospel of Luke is probably the early sixties. And that means the gospel of Mark, which was probably used as a source of the gospel of Luke is in the fifties then. So that gives us, and that's conservative dating, right? That's like, you could say that's even earlier than that, but by some of the most conservative dates that we have, we, we have the first gospel that was written, probably being written about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. So very early documents. Uh, they're pretty early documents by today's standards. Very, very early documents yeah. by ancient standards. So there you go. You can trust that Jesus rose from the dead. That is a thing that people believed pretty much right off the bat. And spoiler, that's going to be a big theme of when we get to our discussion on Colossians coming up. So, Ooh. Yeah. Spoilers on what letters we're doing today. Oops. Well, I guess actually it's in the title of the episode, probably. I haven't written made the title yet, but I'd, I'd imagine I'll put in. Well, I think too, if you're doing the Bible plan. It's probably not a spoiler. That's true. Well, you know. All right. So we're going <laughs> to jump into the rest of Paul's letters. Uh, all of these were written while Paul was in prison and awaiting his trial before Caesar and spoiler alert execution. Although we don't see that in the Bible. We just know about that from tradition. So, but yeah, Nero of neckbeard and Christian persecuting fame uh, kills Paul and also played yeah. the harp while Rome burned. Did that actually happen? I don't know, but that guy was nuts. So I wouldn't put it past him. Nero's just a... <laughs> Nero's a real piece of work. Oh, let me man. let me tell you, listeners. All right. So the first one we're going to read is the book of, or the, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians is how we would know it. Uh, Ephesus is a city in southwestern Turkey. So if you're thinking of Turkey, the country, it's one of the um, it, it's one of the cities that's kind of in that southwestern region where it's a little more. You know, it's not it's not a straight line. It gets I don't know what it's called, but there's a bunch of a bunch of ports and basically Ephesus is one of the ports. So there you go. Like a straight? A straight? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's what it's called. A sound? I don't know what any of these things are. I'm a Bible nerd. I'm not a geog. I, I am a geography nerd. I was going to say, you want to the... recant that there? Yeah. I should know these things. It's a quick side story. This is not related. I have this map that I bought from Hobby Lobby of the World. Great map. Hanging on the wall in my office. Bought it a couple years ago and Evan comes walking into my office one day. And he looks at it and goes, oh, this map. And I was like, yeah. And you said something to the effect of, 
well, that that's not where that's supposed to be, and you're questioning its accuracy. And so I don't know if you even remember that. I don't remember it, but I, that's not, that does sound like me. It does, yeah. I don't, so I don't doubt it. You are a second. Bible and a geography nerd combined. I mean, geography. Two for one. Geography is just a good time. <laughs> but uh, getting into uh, getting into the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul starts off with reminding them that he's essentially preaching the gospel. He reminds them that they have been chosen by God. Uh, and that they have been adopted through Christ. And so this is verses three through 14 of chapter one. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to praise to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which is lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, uh, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that there, so that we who were the first hope of Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So yeah, Paul's basically reminding them as a church, hey, God picked you. Like, uh, like just take a moment and revel in that for a moment that God picked you to save, that you have been bought through the ransom of Christ and that you are now a part of the church. So it's really cool. Uh, he then shares that he gives thanks for the church in Ephesus and that he prays for them always. He, he, always, he says he always remembers them in his prayers. And then going into chapter two, Paul once again wants to remind the church of their hope in Christ. He writes that they were dead in sin, but that God through Christ brought them to life, which is a very intentional, <laughs> that's a very mm-hmm. intentional metaphor. Like it's not lightly that Paul uses the metaphor of resurrection from the dead, because that would be a thing. Like if you said, hey, this person r- resurrected from the dead, you'd be like, well, that's impossible, you know, especially if you're a Sadducee. Uh, but Paul is <laughs> using that intentionally because he's saying, no, this, this is what happened. We mm-hmm. were dead in sin and now we're alive in Christ. So really cool moment there. I won't steal Jesse's thunder because that's a big theme of uh, one of the letters coming up. But uh, that's that's what's going on in that moment. And then we get this really famous passage. This is Ephesians 2, chapter 8, verses, sorry, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Uh, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yeah, it's, he's, he's making it very clear. You did not earn your own salvation. This Mm -hmm. is not because of anything that you've done. You have been saved by grace through the faith that you display. Uh, And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's a result, not of anything that you've done so that you can't boast. And, and and that's an important word. It's an important word for us today, right? Because how often do we want to brag about who we are, brag about yeah. what we've done? And what Paul is saying is like, hey, there's nothing to brag about. It's what Jesus did. That's it. That's the only thing that we can be bragging about at this moment. So really cool. And I also love that he talks about how uh, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us. So just because we've been saved by grace, 
That doesn't mean works aren't important. He's saying, no, do good works, follow, follow the commands of God. We should strive to live holy lives, but we should not think that that is what's giving us our salvation. So that's kind of the, the distinction that Paul is drawing there. Uh, and then as an application, Paul reminds the believers in Ephesus to live in unity, specifically mm-hmm. telling the Gentile Christians that they were once separate from Christ but they were brought in and therefore they are all one in Christ. They are one in Christ with all believers. Uh, They are a part of the house of God, which has Christ as the cornerstone, which I love that Paul uses that metaphor of they're all in one house. And he talks about where the apostles fit in all this different stuff. And then he says, what's the cornerstone? That's Christ. Uh, And for those of you, and for those of you who don't know, the cornerstone is like the most important (laughs) stone in the, in the whole of the building. So I don't know if that still works in like modern and no, I don't know if that's how no, it works. It yeah, but there you go. But back then, you built everything off of the cornerstone, and so yeah. it's what held up most of the weight. And so, if you if you're gonna get a cornerstone, you picked you picked the best stones. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You didn't want to pick a bad one. And so that is who Christ is. Well, we're gonna continue on in Ephesians here in a sec and Colossians. So oh, it's boy. Gonna, it's gonna be a good time. Jesse's gonna take us through that. Uh, but first, we do want to remind you to leave a five star review if on whatever podcast network you are listening on. Uh, It's particularly helpful on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, that's what we like to do. We like to give our listeners a shout out. So take a moment, leave a review. If you have not yet, Jesse, continue on with the books of Ephesians and a mystery epistle that we've already spoiled multiple times. Yeah, no one knows which one that is. But yeah, I am excited to, again, just be on this podcast. I say that again, but I don't think I actually said that earlier. But in case you're wondering, <gasps> Thank you. yeah, glad to be here. And I think too, you know, coming off of Ephesians 1 and 2, you mentioned like the Gentile believers and a large portion of Ephesians chapter 3 especially is directed at the Gentile believers specifically. And so I'm going to go ahead and read just uh, the first six verses, give a couple thoughts on these. But in Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse one, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ." Which was, made, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that part's important, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And just some background, so as I was studying this, Paul really is in this passage assuring a Gentile audience that the gospel was actually for them too. It used to be, you have the Israelites, they're God's chosen people, but now through Jesus, this reconciliation back to the Father is now for everyone. He uses this terminology of fellow heirs uh, to the kingdom of God. And we don't really use the terminology of heirs even, really. That's true. Like when you think about like an inheritance, you know, like you're going to be an heir to something, but it's not very common. And Paul is so passionate about this that he says he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, which I think is just kind of funny. Like, hey, I'm literally in prison for your benefit. So like, be better. Don't mess it up. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird, I shouldn't say weird, but it's it's an interesting 
pickle that the Gentiles find themselves mm-hmm. into. Because I, I think the word, it just made me think of it when you talked about how we don't really use the word heir very much. It would be like if you were an only child and your f- parents were about to die. And oh, then yeah. like a week before they died, they're like, oh, hey, by the way, we adopted Stan. Say hi to Stan. He gets half the inheritance now. And you're like, wait, wait. Like, So you kind of understand where the Jews are coming from, where it's yeah. like, this has been our heritage the entire time we've been God's chosen people. And now all of a sudden the Gentiles are getting let in and they don't even have to be Jews. <laughs> they're just, they're just in. It's one of those things. So it's a, um, it's interesting that so much of Acts and the epistles are devoted to that, to that tension that existed yeah. between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And it's a tension that we don't really have today as yeah. far as in that specific instance, I suppose, because most Christians are, are are Gentiles is kind of the way it works. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting debate that was happening in that moment of time that's kind of been sealed away. I'm sure there's other ways that we could apply it today, but I don't know what yeah. they are off the top of my head. Well, in defense of the, the Jewish people of that time too, if I had to be circumcised to be a part of a religion and then I found out someone else didn't have to, I might also be a little bit yeah. upset. As I've said it a few Maybe times. Maybe that's not but... appropriate for the podcast. Oh, no, it is. I mean, I think I feel like circumcision as an adult, that's a real bummer to get into. <laughs> like that's that's yeah. that's not what you want to hear. Yep, it is. But yeah, so back to the passage, Um, Paul then also goes on and talks about this mystery. And I remember being a kid, maybe in middle school, reading this passage, and he talks about this mystery. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what is this mystery? But the mystery essentially, and he says it in the passage, is that now by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Gentiles are now fellow heirs. So that really is Paul's mission. That's what he is passionate about. And he has this interesting perspective on all of this as well about grace being for everyone. Because as we've talked about, I'm sure multiple points on this podcast, that Paul is someone who has persecuted what we would call the way, the early followers of Jesus. And if anyone is a testament to God's grace being for everyone, it really is Paul. If you were to go ahead to verse eight in this passage, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this isn't just Paul having some kind of false sense of humility, but he really is saying like, guys, I I am really the least, I am the worst. And yet Paul still continues on this. So it is only by God's grace that Paul is able to do this. And so he carries out this mission of this also being for the Gentiles. Uh, Skipping ahead a little bit to verses 14 through 21, Paul continues on. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So to summarize this section, Paul is basically praying for the spiritual strengthening of the believers in Ephesus. And I always love Paul's heart that you see throughout his letters, where even though he's in prison, even though he's shipwrecked, even though he has these horrible situations that happen to him, his concern is always for these other churches and community communities of believers. And we see here that Paul is really praying for an indwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 
And he's sort of advocating for this idea that it's only through the empowerment of the Spirit that we begin to understand just how much Jesus loves us. And even when we start to understand that, right, it's a daily process of growing in just, you know, that knowledge of how loved we are by God and how great the love of Jesus truly is. Uh, Paul's desires for them to be filled with the fullness of God that he has experienced in this way. And he concludes this section by blessing God. This brings us up to chapter four, and the theme of this next section really is unity within the body of Christ. And verse four, verse one, Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And a side note, I just, I love that verse. But verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul really begins here with this exhortation for unity in the body of Christ, which is really a timely message. Again, you have the Jewish believers, and then you have the Gentile believers. And I think it'd be easy for the Jewish believers to try to keep the Gentiles at bay, to say, hey, you're kind of a second-class believer in Jesus. And yet Paul is saying, hey, we need to actually strive for unity. And it's within this that Paul encourages them to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling. That is the call to be God's people. Specifics of this, it breaks down to being humble, to living a life that is full of gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and also unity. Uh, In verse four, Paul roots this to the fact that in Christ, we are one. And pride in yourself isn't what matters, but rather humility as part of a Christian community, as part of the body, is what we are now called to do. Out of this, verse seven through 10, verses 11 through 16, get into sort of the specifics of the gifts that God has given us. And just a quick preface on this, I actually found this was a really interesting part of the passage here because Paul talks about how, hey, there's there's different gifts that all of us have. We all have these gifts by God's grace. And then he unpacks some specific gifts that are used for the building up, maturing of faith and edification of the church. Uh, So I'll read this passage real briefly here, but verse seven, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Then verse 11 starts talking about those other gifts that are specific for building up the church. Paul says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are able to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So really, just a quick summary, 7 through 10 highlights how everyone has a different gift. 
And we've done some studies, you know, on the body of Christ and different spiritual gifts and the ways that God equips and enables all of us. Everyone listening to this podcast has a different gifting from God that you have received. And we talk about some of those things in scripture and we are given grace from God to help us in using that gift to serve other people, which this really lays the framework for 11 through 16. And I found this to be really interesting because Paul says, hey, we all have different gifts. And then he talks about some specific gifts, those being the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, and how those are specifically intended for the equipping of the saints for ministry and helps the body of Christ to mature. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you want to be careful in saying like, oh, well, my gift is better than you. Like I get to be an apostle or I get to be a prophet or something like that. Um, And yet Paul isn't saying that these gifts are necessarily better, but he is saying that, hey, these are more of a gift that is special, that requires a special measure of grace from God to walk in these things because they are ultimately, these are people, right, who are responsible for helping the whole body of Christ grow and mature. And so I just thought that was a pretty interesting segment of that passage there. Well, yeah, and I think Paul oftentimes, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in uh, First Corinthians, I believe, but a lot of times Paul Paul assigns the the gifts a little bit of a ranking and, and, a, and a big part of it is, does it edify the church? Like mm-hmm. you said, is it responsible for building up the church? And I think one of the easiest ways to stay humble in the exercise of spiritual gifts is to just think about it through the lens of how can I use this to build up the church? How can mm-hmm. I use this to edify the church? How can I use this to build up Christians or to bring people to know Christ? If that's the filter you're thinking through, it's probably going to be It'll, it'll be more difficult to be really arrogant, I suppose, is the way I'd for say sure. it with how you use it. Well, and the difference there is your gifts aren't meant for your own personal advancement, right? Right. They're meant for the advancement of the church and the growth and the maturity that comes with that. So, yeah, definitely an important distinction, I think, that Paul helps us see here. Mm-hmm. Continue on in this uh, same chapter, uh, Paul begins to talk about the new life that we have in Christ. Verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you will no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And, you know, if I'm a Gentile believer and I hear that and like the futility of my mind, like what is he talking about? But really what Paul is getting at is the Gentiles uh, who have not converted to Christianity, who are still caught in these pagan beliefs. About them, Paul says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy practice, every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And as I read that section of scripture, you know, there's a couple observations. Again, spoiler alert, uh, when you get to the book of Colossians, a lot of these same themes kind of carry over this idea of the new self, putting to death the former ways of your life. Those things all kind of carry over into that book. Uh, But again, I think it's really interesting that Paul says, hey, you know, to the Gentile believers, now that you have found this new life in Christ, now that you are in this relationship with him, it's time to leave these other ways of life behind you. The final section of chapter four, verses 17 through 24, uh, really is again, Paul addressing this new life. 
again, he's talking about those Gentiles who essentially reject God in this culture. Uh, I think it's interesting too, just the comparison. He uses the word that they're ignorant. And if you interact with you know, people, you know, in this day and age, even where you say, Hey, like I believe in God and they scoff and say, Oh, God's not real. There's sort of this ignorance that comes to it. And it's sort of just a relatable thing to our culture today. Solution to this, Paul says to put off the old self and to pursue a renewal of the mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In verse 25 through 32, just a quick summary, Paul provides practical examples of what it looks like to put off the old self. It's a good list, so make sure you take some time to read that, take some notes if you haven't done so already. Uh, This brings us up to Ephesians chapter 5. Big theme of this chapter to know is a theme of sacrificial love and also submission to one another. Uh, Many of the illustrations of the submission are applicable to Christian households in this day and age. And so let's go ahead and start unpacking this passage. Verse 1, Paul tells us this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And a quick note on this, really what this means is that we are to imitate God in that you and I are to strive to live a holy life. We are to walk in love and follow Christ's example in this way. This means to love other to love others and also put them first in ways that aren't always convenient for us. It's probably not going to look like we have to literally lay down our lives themselves, but we'll have to lay down certain aspects, our preferences, our own selfishness to love other people. Um, being imitators of God, again, striving to live a holy life, this is a good encouragement for those Gentile believers as they're leaving these old ways behind. Jump ahead to verse 11, we read this, Paul says this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The list of these things is kind of given in the verses right before this. Verse 13, Paul says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Evan, I feel like I have to address you in psalms and hymns now. I think that would be by far the best way if we could possibly pull that off. It's like when you watch musicals and people sing to each other. It's like, I don't know how they're doing it, but if we could actually do that within, you know, within the real world, that would be a way cooler way to address each other. It would. But alas. Yeah. Back to, back to verse 20, right? We're not creative. But verse 20 says, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the father in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in this passage here, verses 3 through 20, kind of just to summarize some of what's going on, just an overall theme, again, is that encouragement to imitate God and to model the sacrificial love of Christ. Uh, Verses 3 through 20 can really be best understood as a manual or sort of instructions for holy living. And verse 21 brings back the idea of sacrificial love by submitting to one another. Uh, So what's the connection here? You sort of have this, hey, be an imitator of Christ and love others sacrificially. Uh, Hey, here's all these things you shouldn't do for like 17 verses. And then verse 21 says, hey, brings back this idea of submission and sacrificial love. First 
to kind of start off here. Paul says that as it, Paul encourages us that as intimate imitators of God, there we go, there should be no entertainment of sin in our life. Uh, an application off of this for you and I could be, if there is sin that we're flirting with, that we're allowing to persist, we need to be done because that's not really being an imitator of God to allow sin. Uh, sin and righteousness together are not compatible. Um, the sins that are listed here, uh, they're not the fruit of the Spirit or the result of an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's really saying, hey, in this moment, as an imitator of God, your life should be in alignment with the fruit of the Spirit. Second, these sins are damaging to the person who carries out these sins. But these sins that Paul lists here in 3 through 20 are also damaging to relationships and to community. And I think that sometimes in our lives, we can have this perception that our sin sort of happens in a vacuum, when in reality, if you think about things like sexual immorality, um, like getting drunk, like stealing, like lying, like whatever it could be, all of these sins that we talk about and that Paul lists here also have an impact on other people. They're destructive for ourselves. They're also destructive for our relationships. And I truly believe after reading and studying this passage that you can't love others as Christ did if you are consciously allowing these things to hold a prevalent place in your life. Why? Because it's being destructive for them. Instead, we are to seek God in how we live. We are to seek to imitate him and to submit to one another. This conversation we just had here sets the stage for how sacrificial love and submission plays out in a few different categories of relationships, which bleeds over into chapter six. Here, Paul talks about wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And the wives and husbands passage, you know, Evan, this is like one of those passages I feel like you hear at weddings all the time. It's true. Where it's like, you know, hey, wives, submit to your husbands. Um, I remember hearing a pastor once say that the words he used for this, he's like, this passage can be best described as a submission competition. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is so cheesy. And the worst part of the story is the second wedding I ever officiated, I said those words. You used it again? I used it's a, it. I mean, it's it's catchy. It does rhyme, which is nice. Well, it's one of those things, you know, you're going to make grandma and grandpa on the front, bro. They're going to laugh. You know, oh, submission competition. That's funny. <laughs> so anyways, but... Again, Paul breaks it down. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. Uh, for wives and husbands, this is a common passage. Many of us have probably heard it or read it. Uh, verse 22, though, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the husband submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I said, now as the husband submits to the Christ, I meant to say now as the church submits to Christ. Ah, so clarifying go. point there. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So with this passage, I remember initially reading this, and I've heard a number of debates over the years on this specific section about what is this really saying about you know, the relationship between a husband and his wife. 
And I would just encourage us if we're listening to this, don't try to read, you know, the classic egalitarian versus complementarian debate. Like if we have those rose-colored lenses on, we should be cautious not to let that fully influence our understanding of this passage. Because yes, there are words in here where we read, wives submit to your husbands, but also husbands love your wives. And we can say, oh, well, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, but this passage isn't advocating for husbands to be governing, to be domineering, to be jerks, right? It's also not advocating for wives to be just, you know, servants who have to do whatever their husband says. Right. But there is this relationship of there is mutual respect. That's a part of this that's pictured here. The husband, yes, is the head of the household, but he's not supposed to be this domineering person. But the wife is also encouraged by Paul here to submit out of love and affection for her husband and respect for the leadership that God has given him. So I think it's a really interesting passage here. Uh, you would pick the guests too to unpack this one, you know, hey, just, just in case times. you get some, some uh, negative messages. I don't know. But, um, but again, it says here that wives should submit to husbands as the head of the household, just as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands must love their wives, and this is important, and give himself up for her. So again, it's that theme of sacrificial love and submission that we see here. Uh, the next section, uh, Paul talks about the relationship between children and parents. Uh, you can read this. It's a few verses here, uh, but there is a line in here. Again, Paul encourages us, children should submit to and obey their parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And you know, Evan, I remember a time where my brother was in trouble and my dad was pretty mad at him about something. And my brother quoted this passage to him. <laughs> and I just imagine, you know, He's like, dad, you're not supposed to provoke your children to anger. And I'm just like, oh man, I'm sitting there as a younger brother taking notes um, on how that was going to go for him, right? Do I also quote scripture to combat my father in this way? Probably not. It probably didn't work out for him too well. No, actually the argument got worse, oh, believe it or not. There you go. So the translation he used was don't exasperate your children. You know, that's a classic. It's a know, good word. It is. Uh, but Paul is addressing in this passage though, again, children and parents, and with parents specifically, I really think Paul is trying to get at parents who are harsh and or domineering over their kids. Uh, really, children shouldn't be instructed or raised up to fear their parents. I think there's a healthy level of fear and respect, um, but not to the point of where, you know, the kid is, you know, oh, I'm kept in line because, you know, my parents are like really angry all the time or whatever. But instead, the role of the parent is to disciple their child in love. And there is discipline that comes along with this. But Paul is saying, hey, there has to be a healthy balance here. Don't provoke your children to anger. Also, children, make sure that you obey your parents for this is right. The final relationship that Paul addresses is between slaves and masters. And this is one that's not incredibly culturally relevant for us today. Uh, there was an estimation that probably about one third of the city of Ephesus was actually constituted of people who were slaves, because it was very common for many families to have one, if not multiple slaves in this culture. So in verse five, uh, sorry, yeah, verse five here, Paul says, bond servants, or again, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same for them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. 
The big takeaway here for me is that basically Paul is encouraging masters and slaves to treat each other as fellow heirs of the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul addressing this relationship is not him condoning slavery, but rather encouraging them on how to navigate it in their cultural context from a way that honors the Lord and honors Jesus. Uh, It was really common for uh, slave owners to threaten their slaves with death or imprisonment or beatings. And Paul is saying, hey, if you have a slave, that is just not the way that Jesus wants you to handle this relationship. Uh, The final passage we're going to get to in this chapter Evan, I believe we kick it back to Evan, but is the whole armor of God. And just for time's sake, we're not going to read out the whole list, but we will read verses 10 through 13 in chapter six. And it says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So some observations on this passage here. Uh, we really need God's strength and power to resist the work of the enemy in our life. That's why putting on the armor of God is so important. Uh, we need to be strong in the Lord so that we can overcome these things. Paul has spent a portion of Ephesians talking about holy living and also this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And really to live holy, we need to have the empowerment and the strength of the Holy Spirit that comes from the Lord. Another observation, this is kind of just an encouragement, maybe even a bit of an application, but Paul says here that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And how often in our lives, as I even reflect on my own life, do we tend to focus on situations that we can see? relationships we have with frustrating people, and we actually miss what the enemy is trying to do, what he is trying to destroy behind the scenes. Uh, This passage again says, we don't war against flesh and blood, but rather we are facing off against the unseen powers, against the enemy and the things that he would put in place against our life. Uh, That's why Paul says, hey, take up the whole armor of God, not just part of the armor, not just you know the helmet or the shield, but all of it so that we can be well-rounded and protected against the schemes of the enemy in our life. Uh, the end of this chapter, Paul just goes on. He gives some final greetings. And so if you want to read those, that's, those the best. that happens in verse 21. I'm not going to read it all for you. You can have to see what that final greeting is. It's basically just Tychicus says, hi. Yeah. Grace and peace be with you. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I would... Classic... You say Tychicus? 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 I don't know. How, how, I mean, he's, is, he, is he important enough to really learn how to pronounce his name? No offense. I mean, but you know, he's not really in the story all that much. He just says hi in a few of Paul's letters. That's pretty cool, though. Seems like a cool guy. I think he wrote one of them, if I Got remember correctly. Got an honorable mention. Exactly. I mean, and in, and in fairness, when we get to the other side of eternity, I feel like it'll be a pretty cool honor for those people of like, hey, my name's in the Bible. I, I, I made it in. I'm in the, one of the letters. So there you go. Well, Jesse, what's going on with uh, the next letter that we have to yeah. the church in Colossae? Well, the church in Colossae, man, this is actually a pretty interesting letter. And I was sharing this with Evan when he asked me to do this podcast, and this wasn't planned, but he said, hey, part of your presentation is going to be, uh, not presentation, but conversation on the book of Colossians. And we had actually done recently a series on the book of Colossians in our youth ministry, uh, primarily pulling through chapter three, but also implementing some other pieces. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of perfect timing. 
as we've already done some study and conversation on this. Uh, but really, again, so it's just some context on this epistle. Uh, the book is written to the church in Colossae, and this one's actually interesting because they say it was probably dual partnership that Paul and Timothy authored this epistle together. Ooh. Which I think it's kind of cool. You know, I mean, obviously I think Paul is the primary author, but uh, Timothy likely served as his secretary. It's like when you get those, it's like when you get those books written by famous people where they're the main author, but then there's like a smaller font, real author underneath. And I shouldn't say Timothy's the real author, but you know, he's not the main one, but he he gets in there at least a little bit. There are some books out there though, where it's written by two authors and they don't really specify when the voice of who's talking changes. Have you ever read one of those? I have. I have one on my shelf that I haven't read. I haven't read one. I haven't read it yet. But this next year, as I think, is, yep. it's going to get there. It's a fun time. But yeah, so it's written by Paul and Timothy, and the theme of this book really is that the that Christ is Lord over all creation. That includes the heavens and the earth, the things that are visible and invisible, and also unpacks his work to redeem his people. Now, why is that the theme, you may ask? Well, one of the issues being faced by the church in Colossae is that they're facing some false teaching. And the exact nature of the false teaching is actually kind of unknown, and scholars have gone back and forth and debated about it. Uh, Two of the most likely options, one is that there was some form of Gnosticism that was at play that was leading some believers astray, and another likely theory is that it was a combination of beliefs, almost something syncretist, uh, coming from both Jewish and pagan folklore at the time. Uh, You had people who were calling upon angels for protection and help against evil spirits and saying, hey, if you eat certain things, then you're going to be like, you know, not all right with God. You have to practice these certain festivals and do blah, blah, blah. Uh, And the issue with all of this is that it actually was devaluing the supremacy and the authority of Christ. And what I mean by that is it was saying, hey, if you actually like, hey, Jesus is great. Uh, But if you actually want protection from these things, if you want blessing in these areas, well, then you need to pray to these angels. You need to wear like this, you know, necklace thing. You need to do these different traditions. And like, if you don't do these things, well, then you're not going to be protected and your life is going to be bad. And so again, it devalues the authority of Christ. And so when Paul has the theme of this letter as being that Christ is Lord over all creation, one of the big intentional points of that is he's establishing, we don't need to add anything to Jesus. And one of the illustrations I think of for that is like a good old cup of Starbucks coffee. I know Evan doesn't drink coffee. um, It just gives me horrible anxiety. You know, but Starbucks is really, they're really good at the sweet sugary drinks with all the additives. But if you go to like an actual fancy coffee shop and you have something that's made really well, you don't need a bunch of sugar to make your coffee good. And some of you, that's your application from this whole podcast. You don't need all that sugar to make your coffee good. Just buy it from somewhere else. But with Jesus, right? These people are saying you have to add on all these other things for your spiritual walk with the Lord to be complete, and that's just not the case. So kicking off verse 1 through 2, and sorry, verse, actually the whole first 14 passages, uh, verses here. Uh, Verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul then goes into thanksgiving and prayer, typical feature of his letters. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have 
heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, Colossians starts off with this greetings from Paul, has the statement of authorship, goes into the thanksgiving in prayer. And again, these are all pretty common features of Paul's letters. And sometimes you'll read epistles of Paul and you think, man, like, did he actually write this? One uh, pro tip I would give you is as you're reading these passages of scripture, Uh, especially if you go through Ephesians and Colossians and some of these other epistles, you'll notice that Paul sort of has some patterns and some typical things that he does to open up passages. Uh, He mentions a man named Epaphras. It's a pretty awesome name. and It's it's, a classic. It is a classic. You know, hey, when you and Ashley have another kid, Epaphras. Don't don't spoil it. That should be the name. That's that's not an announcement. Uh, But it's understood that he encountered Paul in his teachings in Ephesus, traveled back to Colossae, which led to the formation of the church. Uh, Epaphras um, is this guy who goes again and he starts, he's super passionate basically about his faith, tells everyone all about it. It's a good time. Uh, Paul says that he prays that the church would know God's will and would have strength and empowerment by the spirit to live it out, which is a similar theme to what we have discussed so far in Ephesians. Paul continues on to address the authority in deity of Jesus, again, because this is a big part of the ongoing false teaching and heresy that they are experiencing. Uh, Verse 15 says this about Jesus. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So basically what Paul does in this passage is he pretty beautifully lays out who Jesus is, his divinity and his authority. He starts with who he is in relation to God and also unpacks who he is in relation to the world and also in relation to the church. And in my study of this passage, uh, we talk about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I found this illustration really interesting because it talked about how like we can't actually see light. And you might hear me say that and think, well, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? And what I mean by that is typically if you see an object in front of you, the reason you do is because there's light reflecting off of it. So what we actually see is we see light reflecting off of different things around us rather than so much the light itself. Now, how does that relate here to Jesus? It says that he is the image 
of the invisible God. Essentially, Jesus is the reflection of God to us as people in this moment. Uh, He was the image of the invisible God in this way. Uh, This passage also unpacks what we would refer to as the pre-existence of Christ. Again, Paul's trying to establish his authority and his divinity. Jesus has always been before creation. It also talks about the preeminence, which affirms his authority and also rank. We don't need to seek out the help of angels or other spiritual practices to have protection from demonic powers or to have blessing or any of this stuff. Why? Because Jesus has the authority over all of those things already. Uh, This is the Jesus who died for us. And this passage tells us that the fullness of God was glad to dwell in him. And therefore, I'm just encouraged because that just reminds me that, man, if the God of the universe, if Jesus would give his life for me, then he is indeed worthy of my worship. Uh, Verse 24, jumping ahead, says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is Paul talking again. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that has given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy, that he powerfully works within me. And this goes back to that conversation we had about different gifts, even here at the end, where it talks about those who uh, are pastors, shepherds, apostles, evangelists, and how those people are responsible for the maturing of the body of Christ. And you see this present here with Paul, because he, him and Timothy are saying that their desire is to present everyone mature in Christ, saying, for this I toil. Paul concludes this first chapter by talking about his ministry and labor for the church in this way. And again, in verses 20 through 29, Paul just highlights his mission and how he's passionate about using his gifts to see the church become mature in faith. Uh, In verse two, we're going to start off here in chapter, sorry, chapter two, but verse six. And Paul says this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Again, Paul is coming back to this idea of there's false teaching that's at play. It's not a good thing. He's saying, hey, don't fall captive to these things. Paul continues on. He says, for in him, the the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you who have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul reminds the Colossians and the the believers in the church of Colossae that they need to be rooted 
in Christ, that they need to be built up and established in their faith, just as they were taught even by Epaphras. And essentially the implication of this is, hey, if you are rooted and established in your faith, if your life has been transformed by Jesus, why allow in these other false teachings? So why Paul goes and he gives a warning that they should not be taken captive by these things. The rest of this section is just a reminder of what Jesus has done and the completeness of it. Again, there's no need to add to the work of Christ or to who Jesus is because the fullness of God and his love all dwells in him for us. Paul goes on in verse 16, and there's a passage here that talks about letting no one disqualify you. And again, you go back to these false teachers and they talk about, uh, if you read through this passage, things like questions of what you eat or drink, uh, what different festivals you might celebrate, um, saying, hey, do you follow asceticism? Do you worship angels? Uh, here's these visions I've had. And like all these different things that the false teacher was saying. Uh, it talks about how if people um, aren't abiding by these things, this false teacher is condemning them and basically saying, hey, your faith isn't legit. You're not actually following God. And so I think it's interesting to understand this because, again, Paul's combating this idea that we don't need to add anything to Jesus. In the final section of chapter two, Paul unpacks a bit more of the specifics of these false teachings, which are listed out here. And again, his encouragement is not to let these false teachers, whoever they may be, to pass this judgment, not to submit to these religious regulations that are no longer needed in the new covenant. Um, these false teachings, Paul says, hey, these might sound wise, they might even sound like they're needed, but you're just adding on to Jesus, you don't need these things. At this point, we transition into chapter three. The theme of this chapter for us today is putting on the new self in Christ. And at this point, Paul's sort of transitioning away from this conversation about this false teacher and what he's doing, and he's turning this into a conversation on, hey, here's how you live a holy life that honors Jesus. So in verse one, it starts off, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Again, this is that transition away from the false teaching into a conversation on holy living. Paul writes, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, I believe that is Scythian, is that the right word there? Scythian maybe? Scythian? Oh, that's probably more accurate. Scythian, slave free, but Christ is but Christ is all and in all. And I just love how that verse ends, right? Because again, Paul's writing to um, even back in the book of Ephesians, sort of this audience of you have some who are Gentile believers and some who are of Jewish descent. And Paul is basically saying, hey, in Christ, there is no more of this division that we have had before. 
Gentiles, Israelites, like you said, they're all part of the same house, that same cornerstone. Evan, that was a really great uh, passage you got to discuss, discuss there. Because Christians have died with Christ, what we see here is that they are now put to death the earthly sinful desires and actions of our formal, former selves. The instruction to put these things to death, and this is not meant to be a cute figure speech. Rather, it's an encouragement towards taking some form of severe action against sin in our life. And really, Paul is writing this to try to get people's attention. Like, hey, if there is any of these sins that are ongoing, you need to take, you know, some pretty big steps against it to make sure that these things are not active in your life. Verses 10 through 17, Paul unpacks what it means to put on the new self and to live in a way that honors Christ. In verse 11, Paul also mentions how there is not Greek and Jew, uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, again, doing away with these divisions that used to be there. All that matters is now the common belief in Christ and the fact that they're fellow heirs. Uh, After this section, uh, you have chapter 3, verses 18, which goes all the way up through chapter 4, verse 1. And here, Paul unpacks rules for Christian households and relationships. Um, Similar to Ephesians, he unpacks wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. We won't dive into that because we had a pretty good conversation a little bit earlier on that passage. Uh, But again, it does just go to further affirm Paul's authorship of this epistle. So getting to the very last part of the passage here, we're going to talk about in verse uh, 2 of chapter 4. Paul gives us an encouragement. He says, to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, being Paul and Timothy, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. A few things I love, even though Paul is in prison, his request isn't, hey, pray for me that I can get out of jail. And I think many of us, when we pray, it's, hey, God, would you address my circumstance? But Paul is saying, hey, when I'm in prison, would you pray for a door to be open to the word? In other words, another opportunity for me to preach. And then his next encouragement that he gives is to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Uh, which is very applicable to the church today. And he tells them, hey, let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. And simply what this passage isn't saying, this isn't saying, hey, like, don't, like, be really careful not to offend anyone, right? Um, There are going to be aspects of our Christian faith and things we believe in preaching Jesus, just as you see Paul getting slapped in the book of Acts by people. Like, sometimes your belief in Jesus is just going to be offensive. By that jerk high priest. Yeah. Well, Paul didn't know. You know, it was an accident. Yeah. I I can insult him, though. He's not in charge of me. Uh, That's true. Well, Paul's (laughs) Paul's also... The high priest you're insulting? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. high priest also isn't here to slap you. Because he's not alive anymore, so... That we know of. No. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) But anyways, Paul's not saying, hey, like, make sure you never offend anyone. But what Paul is saying, hey, the the testimony of what Jesus has done in your life, who Jesus is, all of these things, we need to have a really clear way to explain them that is compelling, that people want to listen to. Uh, Again, you see that, I think, with Paul as he's testifying in different courts. You have people who are intrigued, who want to listen, some people who get really upset, And Paul is encouraging the people in Colossae in this church just really to be ready to share your testimony in a clear and compelling way. 
A simple application for us today, I think, is simply this. Know your testimony. What has Jesus done in your life? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in him? And be ready to tell others about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. Uh, Final passage here, verses 7 through 18. Paul closes with more final greetings. And that's a lot of verses because he goes and lists off all these other people who are like, hey, this guy says hi. He says hi too. These other people say hi. You know, it's pretty cool. There's a few people that are in there that were in some other ones. There's Tychicus and then there's good Epaphras. Old, good old Tychicus. There's Jesus who is called Justice, which is, I mean, that's a great one-two punch for names there. Uh, and then you'll notice Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Oh, no. I guess they're patching things up a little bit. Also, Luke, the beloved physician. Hey, what a guy. What a guy that Luke. Well, listeners, that wraps it up for the Bible portion of today's podcast, but we will be talking about what we learned today. So for me, it comes back to, I think both of our application points will be in Ephesians, but uh, in chapter two, just the reminder of we are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Uh, and I think that's such an important thing for us to keep in mind is that there, we should not be proud. We should not be arrogant because Christ is the one who has saved us. We're saved because of what Jesus accomplished. We're not saved because of what we've done. Uh, so at any point that we see that, that we feel that pride creeping in at any point where we feel like we're better than other people, uh, it's a great reminder to say, nope, the entire reason I'm saved is because of God's grace. Um, and I also think it becomes it becomes a lot more difficult to be angry at people if we keep that in mind. Like the mm-hmm. next time that we're angry with someone, the next time that you just want to fly off the handle or whatever it is, reminding yourself that I'm saved by grace and that's all there is. I think that's a great and really powerful thing for us to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, mine would probably come to Ephesians chapter four. And again, that, that discussion that we have there about unity within the body of Christ And I think simply what I would say, you know, Paul lists out here again, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, another, peace and unity. Um, Those are all characteristics of a follower of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to remember that, hey, like as Paul says here, verse four, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that if we are a member of the church, if we believe in and love Jesus, that things like humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, those should mark our life. And so for us, I think it's really important to ask ourselves, maybe after this podcast, pray and just be like, God, how am I doing with those different markers? Am I being humble, gentle? Am I patient? Am I bearing with one another in love? How am I doing with creating a sense of unity? I think that's one of my big takeaways. All right. Well, the last portion today, we have a couple questions that came in. So we're going to go ahead and answer those. Oh my. All right. So the first one says in the three, uh, sorry, in the three gospel stories of Jesus and the demons legion, in the demon legion, the demons legion, well, that is kind of a confusing way to say it, isn't it? Because I guess it is multiple. We are legion. Oh man. Uh, can you provide clarity as to why the people asked Jesus to leave the area? Were the people scared of what he'd do next? I guess Jews who kept pigs probably had some hmm. issues that they didn't want Jesus to point out, uh, which I love that idea of like, please, no, not the rest of our pigs. Let us keep them. Uh to me, I mean, obviously this is just conjecture, right? We're not explicitly told. I, I think that this comes down to a don't shoot the messenger situation where there's kind of an idea that 
is Jesus the one bringing the trouble? You know, because before Jesus showed mm. up, like, hey, we didn't have all these pigs running off of cliffs, and now all of a sudden it's happening. So you don't even really get to enjoy the miracle for what it is. Uh, you kind of just, you're just kind of mad that the flocks are gone. I don't know. Yeah. It reminds me, I think there's a, uh, is it the Avengers, I think, where like at one point one of them makes the arguments like, you know, before you guys were here, no, we didn't, we never had aliens attacking us from outer space. And now all of a sudden, like, I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Hmm. Reminds me of in Lord of the Rings. What is what is Wormtongue call Gandalf? He calls him Stormcrow, a heralder of bad news, that mm. Gandalf. And so maybe they're viewing Jesus the same way. I don't know, that Jesse, you got, any, you got any thoughts? No, I mean, it's interesting. I I personally, I think when I, this is, you know, obviously off the cuff, I think probably they were just a little freaked out because I think you had this guy who was a demoniac. They kind of just knew, okay, leave him alone, right? And we'll True. be fine. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he has this power to cast out these demons. And like you said, the, the pigs all run off the, the cliffs and everything. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I think Jesus upset the status quo, which is, you know, broader application to life. Sometimes we're more comfortable staying with the status quo than letting Jesus do something that needs to happen. But that's just another podcast for another time. It's a whole nother thing. Yeah. All right. The second question is, uh, hello, let's read the Bible podcasters extraordinaire. Thank Aww. you. Thank you. As uh, a guest, I'm honored. I have a random music. Yeah, you are part of that now. You are one of the extraordinaires. Uh, I have a random musing that I'm hoping you can clarify. If Mark considered Peter's is Mark if Mark is considered Peter's perspective of events, why is it that Matthew 14 mentions Peter walking on water, but Mark 6 leaves it out? It's a good question. Again, this is full conjecture. So who knows? Uh, my first instinct would be. There's two options that come off of the top of my head. I think one of them would be that Peter's embarrassed by the fact that he walked on the water and then immediately fell back into it. So that could be one, hmm. that could be one part of it. Um, I think the second option, and I think this is probably where I land, is that if you read the gospel of Mark, it's very much just the bare bones. <laughs> like there's almost yeah. nothing has really gone into detail. Uh, and so I could also see for Peter's, from Peter's perspective, the important part of that story is that Jesus freaking walked on water and it's a miracle and it, it helps to prove that he's the son of God. Um, and at the same time, like the, the idea of him, uh, of the idea of Peter also walking on water and having that moment that that wasn't really the point of the story. And so Peter chooses to not, uh, to not involve it. That, I mean, that's kind of just like off the top of my head. Maybe that's why he was doing it. Jesse, I don't know if you sure. have any thoughts there. Well, you have the question in front of you. I don't. Could you read it for me one more time? It is. So if Mark is considered Peter's perspective of events, why is it that in Matthew 14, it mentions Peter walking on water, but on Mark six, it leaves it out. So basically mm. the story of Jesus walking in water, uh, in Matthew, it mentions Peter comes out into the water with with Jesus, but in Mark, completely completely ignores it. We don't get that part of the story. And Mark is Peter's perspective. I well, theoretically, theoretically, right? yeah. So huh. we we don't know exactly what, but tradition tells us that John Mark is one of the disciples of Peter, and so that it's probably his perspective. It also could just be that John Mark just kind of gathered up some of the stories of the apostles and yeah. put it all together as well. So who who knows? It could be. Yeah, I, I don't think I have anything much to add beyond what you've already said as your answers for that. But I do know even just with the Gospels in general, you'll have different, like the same story appearing a few times where, right. you know, the wording is slightly different or the events are told from a different perspective. And so it could even be something as simple as that, for whatever reason, the author didn't think it was important. Maybe it was Peter just being embarrassed. I think that's a pretty good theory uh, from what we know of Peter in the Bible. 
That uh, seems like a Peter thing to do. And if it and if it's true, it gives Mark even more credit for putting in the uh, the story about him running away naked in the <laughs> in the story. Although I guess he didn't put his name to it, so assuming that's who that was, but. There you go. Who knows? Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.